Hey, Kale here. Just a quick reminder that this episode deals with some spoilers for V for Vendetta by Alan Moore, and also some spoilers for the movie. So you've been warned. Enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Matt and Kale Read Comics. I'm Matt Smith. I'm a Canadian and British cartoonist, comics educator, and filmmaker currently living in Scotland. And I'm Kale Werrike. I'm a longtime mainstream comic book fan, cosplayer, collector, and former filmmaker. This episode, we are looking at V for Vendetta, the graphic novel written by Alan Moore with art by David Lloyd, and uh, there is additional art by Tony Weir. Lettering was done by Steve Craddock, with the colorists throughout the series were Steve Whitaker, Siobhan Dodds, and David Lloyd. V for Vendetta takes place in what was then a futuristic 1997, where England was almost destroyed from nuclear war, and in response, a fascist government has taken over the country. An independent freedom fighter slash terrorist who calls himself V strikes back at the government while dressed as Guy Fox, complete with cape, tall hat, and paper mache mask. In the first issue, he rescues slash kidnaps a 16-year-old girl named Evie Hammond and eventually mentors her to join him in his crusade. That's the, the overall idea, but there's so much more to this comic. There's so many characters, there's so many different uh, plot lines kind of woven in and out to help us break down this groundbreaking you know, landmark graphic novel, we have a special guest. Please welcome to the show, my good friend, Mark Allard-Will. Thank you guys, and thanks for having me. I'm excited to look at this with you. Yeah, we're very excited to have you, Mark. Mark Allard-Will is a British-born Canadian comic book writer known for The Burning Black, The Legend of Black Shuck. Having studied film and TV production at Bucks New University in High Wycombe in England, Mark has also won awards for the likes of... Sorry. Mark has also won awards from the likes of LA Film Awards and Top Shorts for his short screenplays and is even listed as a Hall of Famer at the Rome Independent Prisma Film Awards. Uh, wow. <laughs> and Mark and I have been friends since he reached out to me by email a couple years ago to commission me to contribute a pinup to his graphic novel Arcade, which is about a, a Viking video game character gaining sentience within his video game. So I drew a pinup of a skeleton pirate uh, riding a pirate ship for Mark, but I also uh, included, I snuck my wife Emma into the pinup as she was like the figurehead on the pirate ship. We've been friends ever since, and then we met in person uh, a couple years later after that, maybe it was one year later, at the Vancouver Comic Arts Festival in Vancouver, and we were both uh, exhibiting there, and we've stayed in touch and have supported each other's projects. Um, a couple months ago, when the pandemic started, Mark uh, began doing video interviews with different cartoonists. I was very honored to be his first guest, so I thought it's you know only fair to return the favor and have Mark be our first guest on this podcast. So welcome, Mark. We're very excited. I know we all have a bunch of things to say. As, as our guest, can you start us off, you know, what was your first impressions of this book? And it's kind of interesting because I, I was messaging you saying, hey, you know, my buddy Kale and I are doing this podcast and want to have you on. We're thinking about doing, you know, V for Vendetta, Sin City, do you have any strong opinions about either one of these books? And you wrote back, and can you just tell us what you said? Um, so initially, uh, what I wrote back to you was, yeah, I absolutely hated the book. But um, I remember picking it up in uh, for the first time probably in 2016, and I read about halfway through it, and I just closed the book. That's it. I hate it. Uh, but I reread it knowing that I was coming on the show, and suddenly I was like, wow, this book is powerful. I love it. Um, so I had this like weird um, 
arc from when you invited me on the show to today when we were recording the show of going from hating it to like absolutely loving it. I'm glad you like it. I was a little disappointed though because I thought it would be kind of an interesting spin as our first guest as kind of a, a hostile guest coming out swinging, you know, <laughs> that he hated the book. But, uh, you know, I, I do think there's something to be said about rereading it and coming to it later maybe in life and appreciating it from a different standpoint. Um, so that <laughs> I'm glad, you know, it's I, I want to hear kind of what it was as we talked today about what it was that kind of changed your opinion. Kale, what's, what's your relationship with this graphic novel? I didn't really read it, read it, right? Um, I, I put it down because I was like, it, it was kind of too heady for me at the time. At the time, I was reading things like, you know, Batman, Superman, very like uh, top shelf kind of stuff. So uh, I saw the movie, uh, I think it was 2005, you know, and the movie obviously shows V in a very like heroic fashion and him as like the dashing rebel and fighting against oppression. And that really appealed to me at the time because I was living through a Bush era as like a, a progressive. Yeah. So let me just ask, when did you read the book then? Because when did you read it properly? I read it properly, actually, after I saw the movie. Uh, my first exposure to V, I would consider it my first exposure to V was the movie because, I mean, the first time I like, quote unquote, read it, I just kind of went through it at a bookstore, mm -hmm. uh, you know, in, in my teens my mom used to leave me at this bookstore all the time whenever she went <laughs> shopping or did errands. So <laughs> fortunately, they had a great comic book section. So I would just like, nice. you know, go through comics all day just for hours. So, so uh, you had read it before. I thought this was maybe your first time reading it properly. OK, no, no. So I read then I read it again, of course, before this episode and I got more information. I did went through the interviews and stuff. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, it was all very interesting as a subject matter. Yeah, I read it originally in high school. Um, I started really getting into graphic novels later in high school. So I knew, you know, Watchmen was the one you have to read. You have to read Dark Knight Returns. And then I was just hungry for more. And I've always kind of followed writers more than artists. So I was just looking, what else has Alan Moore made? And, you know, V for Vendetta comes up in lists with, you know, the best comics that Alan Moore has ever created and the best comics ever created in general. So I read it uh, many, many years ago when I was in high school. And uh, I reread it again. Uh, you know, the last week to get ready for this episode, and then I immediately watched the movie, and I I'm a little, I'm a little burnt out <laughs> because I've, I've also done research, I've read it, and then I also kind of went through it a couple more times just to look for uh, details and stuff. So I'm a little burnt out, and I think it's going to be a while until I read it again. But there's definitely lots going on, and definitely lots to uh, to talk about. Uh, Mark, as you know, the most British member of this of this uh, trio right now. Um, you said you wanted to talk a little bit about the history of Guy Fawkes. So I thought you could start us off with a bit of a history lesson, if that's okay. Yeah, for sure. Um, what's really interesting about the book is that um, the history of Guy Fawkes and Guy Fawkes Night is only really mentioned as November 5th. There's no um, allusion to anything other than fireworks. Um, and what's really interesting is that dichotomy of V and how he's portrayed in the book as this... Um, potentially a villain, morally ambiguous. Um, and there's also that mental ambiguity. Um, there's this suggestion that he could be dangerous mentally as well as morally. And so we get this suggestion as a reader whether Evie should trust him or not. Um, but with the actual guy, he was essentially a full guy for this uh, trio of, I believe, five um, Catholics who were rising up against the, the Protestant England. 
um, and this guy who had given them all of the information, sorry, not to be confused with Guy, uh, but this, uh, I can't remember the, the chap's name, but um, uh, so he was uh, feeding information to Guy and his team. This is how you can get into Parliament. This is how you can do all of that. Um, and so they go in there with the barrels um, and he's been told, well, there's not going to be any guards because the guards only um, patrol the perimeter when the uh, MPs are in session. Um, so he decides to essentially sleep with the barrels and wait, wait it out until the rest of the team arrives. And obviously the uh, man that they trusted to feed them information has, of course, gone to Parliament told them the plan and that's when Guy is surrounded. Um, the interesting thing is that there's still to this day this persistent rumour that uh, Guy was caught and hung. Uh, he wasn't. He actually um, died trying to flee from Parliament and he fled from the guards. The guards couldn't catch him, but he like tripped over the perimeter wall, if I remember rightly, and broke his own neck as he landed. Um, so he landed head first, essentially, which is pretty brutal. Um, well, that's interesting because even the film starts with the hanging of Guy Fox, and the research I right. did talked about how Guy Fox was hung, sorry, hanged uh, a year later after the the gunpowder plot. So you're saying that's apocryphal? Is that the right word? Yeah, I I think what they actually did is they actually took his corpse, and as a public session, they hung the or they, sorry hanged the already dead corpse. Um, oh, wow. So, like, literally just to um, desecrate the body even further, desecrate his image to the public, and because and, this was very much during the time that followed the Tudors, um, so very much in this uh, vein of um, anti-Catholicism that had taken over England. But, but that's um, also a very symbolic act, and, I mean, connecting it back to the graphic novel, which is all about symbols and the power of imagery and the power of symbols, I mean, that right there is a really startling connection that, even his death was this more of a symbolic thing than an actual killing. Right. And a lot of people believe that the, uh, the guy who set them up um, was doing so to, to further inspire hatred towards uh, Catholics and stuff like this. So interestingly, that kind of in a way plays into the graphic novel in the sense that you have this, um, um, you know, anti democracy. So you can view democracy as kind of being the Catholicism there. Yeah. Um, and nowadays in the UK on the 5th of November, and this is why we chose to talk about this graphic novel now. We're hoping to release this just before the 5th of November. Uh, it's bonfire night and there's fireworks. And uh, I live in Scotland now, as I mentioned, and my wife Emma and I are going for walks daily along the River Clyde. And for the last week and a half, people have already got their hands on fireworks. So there's already been like a bunch of just random fireworks going off. So we're expecting even more on the 5th of November. The graphic novel does start on the 5th of November and then it ends about a year later, a couple days after the following 5th of November. Do you guys want to talk about, I'm going to talk a little bit about the, the publishing background. I don't know if you guys did any research on just the publishing schedule. It was really kind of confusing. So they were originally serialized in short episodes, about six to eight pages. And as you're reading the, the collection or even the single issues from DC, you can see that, you know, there's episodes within each issue. So they are kind of broken up into smaller chapters. So they were originally published between 1982 and 1985 in this black and white British comics anthology called Warrior. 
And then Warrior was canceled before the series was finished in 1985, and there was a bit of a break. And then three years later, in 1988, DC Comics uh, brought Alan Moore and David Lloyd into the fold and let them reprint and colorize the first couple of episodes and reprint those as issues. And then they finished the story uh, and wrapped it up and then eventually, obviously, collected it as one graphic novel. So it's just interesting kind of reading the pacing. There are, you know issues within the graphic novel and then even within those issues there are these kind of short episodes which becomes a bit more apparent the closer you're kind of looking for it and the more you pay attention where these kind of beats are um one interesting thing i found about alan moore just before we talk about the writing is he was born blind in his left eye which i think is really kind of interesting for someone who works in such a visual medium but um you know mark as our guest and as a comics writer yourself you know what did you think of the writing um, the writing is really powerful, both in terms of what you get as the finished product uh, in its metaphors, its um, kind of visual symmetry of what it's showing to the comparison to the real world. But also um, the dialogue at first, I, I hated the dialogue in the first act of the book. And, and I still and I still do, actually, even on this reread, I, I still because it's clunky, it's big, there's too much. But then as it goes on, it really fine-tunes. The dialogue really fine-tunes. Uh, it's just in that first act. My only problem with the writing and in terms of what we see um, as like the caption boxes, all of that, everything is captioned in that first act. You've got the mm. scene with, uh, what's his name? Lilliman, um, Father Lilliman. Uh, let's go to the other room. And then you see another panel and the caption is the other room. Uh, whereas we as the reader should be able to visually take away that this room that they're in in this next panel looks different. We know it's the other room. It is the other room. Yeah. <laughs> Kale, what did you think as uh, looking at it from a writing point of view? I actually dug the writing quite a bit. Uh, and I agree that it kind of starts out a little clunky, but once you get into the story, it picks up. I think in the movie, they basically make the bad guys, the bad guys are very cartoonish, almost. V is as like this uh, anarchist hero, but the book itself kind of humanizes people across the spectrum. Like, it's really hard to actually, you know, uh, identify with uh, V as a hero. He, he is, he has his bad side as well, and he seems more insane, uh, and uh, even the the people who are part of um, Norse fire are also kind of humanistic. They go, you know, they go to church, they have normal lives. There are some people that actually believe in the ideology and other people who don't. Um, so it, it's just very interesting. It's very interesting. I think, yeah. I think we've all kind of brought up in our own way that, you know, V is a very challenging character. I, and I think much more about in the comic than in the movie. I, I kind of want to save the movie stuff to the end, but, He's, he's much more not, I don't even know if unlikable is the right word. It's just challenging to kind of know what his true motives are. He is, you know, very kind of single-minded and he does make it hard to kind of root for him sometimes, which I think is a really interesting choice. And you're totally right, Kale. You know, Alan Moore really did try to find, you know, the human side of all these fascist characters. And I love the quote. I got a quote here. He's asking Evie, you know, when he's, already kidnapped her slash rescued her. And that's why I keep using that term, you know, is, is it a kidnapping? Is it a rescue? Is he a freedom fighter? Is he a terrorist? You know, Alan Moore does want you to kind of have these questions, but he's trying to get to know her a little bit in his, his base of operations, the shadow gallery. Evie says, I'm nobody, nobody special, not like you. 
And then V responds, everybody is special. Everybody. Everybody is a hero, a lover, a fool, a villain. Everybody. And I think that right there really shows Alan Moore's writing style. You know, he really does have these full lives for every character. And oh my gosh, there are so many characters, you guys. I had, I had such a hard time with all the characters. And, you know, I did some researching on Alan Moore's writing. There's a book called Alan Moore's Writing for Comics, where he talks about before he did any writing of the script, he came up with this complete world thinking about the history. And he said, you know, I have so much information that's never going to be revealed because there's just not enough space. And also it's not important for the readers to know. It's only important for me to know. But he's got just so much he does before he starts writing the script about the world. And then, you know, it does feel like this fully realized world. And I saw connections to Watchmen in that. You know, he does kind of uh, use a lot of the, a lot of similar writing traits, a lot of similar writing ticks. He's got you know, all these minor characters that are kind of commenting on the main action and their stories are kind of weaved in and out. Uh, there's a pair of cops that are kind of investigating and interacting with the main characters, similar to the two cops in Watchmen. Uh, but also one thing very, very specific that he uses in both Watchmen and V for Vendetta, I don't know if you guys noticed this, but there is a young female character. In this story, it's Evie. In Watchmen, it's uh, Lori who gets kicked out of her house and then has to stay with an older gentleman. So Lori in Watchmen is staying with Dan, the night owl. And in this one, it's Evie with her eventual lover, Gordon. And be, over time, house guests become lovers. So I don't know what this particular itch that Alan Moore had to scratch about having a young woman stay with a slightly older man or an older man and starts out as house guests and eventually become lovers. I don't know why this is something that shows up in two of his most well-known comics. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't see that connection, but yeah, it totally makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> what I found really interesting is the uh, touching on the characters again, um, that V is suggested that he himself is a product of fascism. I'm not sure mm. if you if you caught that, but when they give his backstory, uh, the backstory is that he's in this kind of Unit 731 or Dachau style camp, um, kind of possibly because of the medical aspect, probably closer to Unit 731 with the med medical abuses. Um, and so he is this character who is then responding to this and um, giving his reproach to this is technically a product of fascism. So that, for me, um, gave another question of moral ambiguity. So you get the moral ambiguity of him anyway with his violence. Uh, you get the mental ambiguity that comes out of his, uh, the backstory that we see. Is he mentally dangerous as well as physically? C can he be trusted by Evie? That's what the question that comes to us as the reader. But ultimately it gives us this backdrop of can we trust him because he is actually a product of what he's fighting against? Yeah, and also I think there's definitely a distance between us, the reader, and V, the character, because he does hide behind the mask, and we never see his face beyond the mask. So yeah. he's got this unmoving, unchanging smile. So it does lead us, and we are forced to kind of interpret and try to figure out what his motives are beneath this mask, beneath this veneer. And I, I think that all ties together. You know, we're never quite sure, should we trust this guy? Should we even like this guy? Um, right. What, what do you guys think was V's, you know, quote unquote crime? Why was he locked up in the concentration camp? Um, what do you think it was that led him to be an enemy of the government? Uh, I think he just happened to be uh, one of uh, 
I can't remember what it's referred to in the in the book, but he's you know not a uh, uh, oh god, this is a not um, politically correct thing to say, but <laughs> you know um, because of you know the history of fascism, he's not quote unquote Aryan. He's not part of that mm -hmm. fake make you know that fake make believe race of of perfect you know supposedly perfect human beings. Kale, what did you think? I guess I had an opinion when I first read it and then I actually changed it on this reread. But what did, what do you think, Kale? Yeah. Is there anything specific that he did? Uh, you know, I again, I, I think uh, Mark is right on this one. I think it is either someone who is does not fit the mold of uh, the Aryan, quote unquote, Aryan race. So um, I thought he was either like, uh, you know, a homosexual or mm -hmm. uh, an artist or somebody that is definitely does not fit uh what uh, North Fire represents. Yeah, I was just going to say, I mean, given what we see in the Shadow Gallery, it's also possible that he was, uh, I guess, what North Fire would consider like an intellectual criminal in the sense that mm. he is a uh, someone who is able to think for himself. He will not accept the rules of North Fire. He's um, a progressive. Mm -hmm. Well, I originally, when I first read it, I was... I felt it was very heavily implied that he was homosexual. He was a, a gay man. So I agree with Kale's first takeaway. But on reread, I really do think that Alan Moore does a good job of making it so that he does kind of represent everyone who isn't, you know, you know, towing the party line and isn't, you know, uh, fitting into their mold. So I do think that he could be a person of color or a person of different sexual orientation or an artist. And I, I do think that it is left open enough that he is very inclusive and representative of everyone who doesn't fit with what their vision is. So I, I on reread, I, I do think that it is left purposely open so that you can insert, you know, any character into that mold or into that role. But I, th I think why I originally was so sure that he was a gay man was because he very much shies away from a romantic relationship with Evie in the, in the book. Whereas in the film, they really lean into a bit more of a romantic connection between them. And I do like that there is, no romantic connection really you know i mean they speak of love but i, I don't feel that it's romantic love i don't feel that they're destined for a kind of physical relationship even though there was this odd panel where she does kiss him on the lips through the mask which was still very strange but i, I do think they do a good job of making him represent you know everyone he could have been all these characters he could have been anyone who didn't fit with what norse fire wanted their new england to be mm -hmm. um speaking of england did you guys notice it's within the first couple of pages? V is getting ready. He's putting on his Guy Fox mask. Evie's getting ready at her home. There's a lot of connections between the two of them, you know, getting ready for their night out, you know, getting dressed in the mirror. But they're both listening to the radio. Someone on the radio is saying that every man in, in England needs to do their job to make Britain great again. So they're using this term, make Britain great again, in 1982, I believe it was. Mm -hmm. What did you guys think of that? The sorry the thing that's uh, really interesting about that is that obviously he couldn't have predicted donald trump and we in 2020 read that as donald trump but mm -hmm. he was actually kind of semi-quoting uh, uh yeah he was quoting oswald mosley and uh so oswald mosley was britain's fascist during what became world war ii or the years that ramped up to it mm. um and he actually had an alarming an alarming um rise in fan base it, it got to the hundreds of thousands um and so if you look up britain's history during world war ii it's not as uh rosy as people would have you believe um 
there is this uh there was a lot of anti-semitism uh oswald mosley was stoking it and um so this kind of like make america great again it actually uh, i believe oswald mosley's um most um famous or infamous if you will um rally was called make britain great again so trump has actually Oof. taken everything everything from oswald mosley um <laughs> And this is why you should definitely be very afraid of Donald Trump, uh, because there is uh, there definitely is a fascist overtone to his propaganda. I think it does speak to the timelessness, you know, as much as this book is very much a product of uh, the Thatcher 1980s. And Mark, I think you could speak more to that. Um, but, you know, Kale, you definitely connected to it growing up in Bush era uh, America or not growing up, but living through the Bush era America. And, you know, it still has connections. Like we still see these uh, kind of warning signs for Donald Trump's America. But I mean, going back to when the book was actually written, Mark, you said you kind of wanted to, to bring in some of your personal history. Yeah. Um, so for me, I was born in 1987, but uh, growing up, there was a lot of um, videos and documentaries that you'd watch about uh, the end of the Margaret Thatcher era. And what I came to learn is that there was another alarming rise of fascism in the 80s. Um, and it's like, we just can't get rid of this thing, right? It's like this disease that just keeps coming back. And for some reason, people can never seem to be clever enough to realize it's really bad for us. It's really bad mm -hmm. for everyone. Um, and, you know, um, so in the 80s, we had uh, Margaret Thatcher. She was just smashing up the, the unions, breaking up the unions like what uh, Reagan was doing at the same time in the United States. But in Britain, uh, it led to a lot more unrest than what happened in the US, uh, like mm -hmm. a lot more unrest riots, uh, like there were Molotov cocktails through shop windows, the whole thing. Um, but the fascism comes into a national front and Margaret Thatcher wouldn't take a stance against them. Um, and oh. so, yeah, so it wasn't until, so she wasn't pro-fascism, she wasn't anything. It's kind of like, um, Again, uh, Trump. yeah, yeah, kind of, well, Trump is kind of, he's slightly closer to being pro, but hiding it. But yeah. Margaret Thatcher was like, oh, uh, I don't want to get involved in social stuff. Let's not get involved in that. I, I'm scared of getting involved in that. It will end in e even more backlash and even more unrest. And and all of this, which uh, wasn't true. They could have just got the police on, on National Front. But they, you know, and the, these were like, not the PG friendly, uh, you know, radio edit Nazis that we see today or alt-right as they've kind of uh, rebranded themselves. These were like bomber jacket skinheads, Molotov cocktails, um, smashing in, and they were like smashing in windows of like uh, Pakistani British owned stores and stuff like that real just horrible horrible people um and so alan moore i see a lot of um like kind of synergy and reference to um national front and the the alarming rise of national front and the breaking down of the unions and the kind of authoritarianism or those at least authoritarian aspects of Margaret Thatcher, because I, I know that will be debated and that will go down controversially yeah. uh, because some British people are very pro-Thatcher and other people aren't. Um, I know she's and, very divisive. Yeah, and I mean, you can probably tell by my tone which camp I fall in. <laughs> um, you know, there were good things that she did and, and I, I can't, you know, denounce her entirely, but... Um, 
you know, even the Falklands War was something that divides people. And mm -hmm. um, I mean, yes, Argentina did illegally invade the Falkland Islands, but there was also a very heavy handed response. And uh, so everything was heavy handed, in my opinion, with Margaret Thatcher. And we seem to see that in metaphor in Viva Vendetta. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we can actually speak about Alan Moore's view of anarchy and how it kind of plugs into the Thatcher era. Um, and his view is that anarchy doesn't mean the destruction of everything. It means more of uh, no leaders. So it, it's definitely different from my understanding of anarchy. And I, I think that a lot of that definitely is in this book with uh, the character of V and his need to kind of destroy symbols of power or mm -hmm. um, in, in this case, uh, destroy uh, this government, this fascist government. Well, I wrote down a quote that really ties to what you're saying. V is saying, you know, with anarchy comes an age of true order, which is to say voluntary order. And this mm -hmm. is when everything's kind of gone to hell and people are writing. And he says to Evie, this is not anarchy, Eve. This is chaos. So this wasn't his plan. He doesn't want people doing, you know, just reacting and rioting and going nuts. He wants them to be empowered and be able to, to self-govern and to be responsible for their own, you know, well-being and they're responsible to the community without you know, this bigger brother government. So I do mm -hmm. think that Alan Moore is, you know, slipping in his sort of his own take on anarchy and his his beliefs, I think, come through very much through that character of Vietnam. I think this is more of an idealized version of anarchy, uh, at least Alan Moore's uh, vision of it, because obviously people are if if you gave everyone, uh, you know, the same kind of control to do whatever they like, uh, things, you know, not everyone is as civilized, I would say. Some people would want, uh, you know, complete anarchy as in the sense that, uh, yeah, just people would be, uh, you know, riding in the streets or whatever it is, right? Like, I, there wouldn't be that much structure to it. Yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it's an interesting idea, though, to think about uh, as far as, you know, in intellectually about how society can be governed uh, or not governed, I guess, like self-governed, right? But I, th I think you hit on something really poignant right there, Kale. And I mean, doing research and reading Alan Moore's um, interviews, you know, he's not he's not saying this is what I think we should do, but these are ideas for you to think about. And I, I think by making V that very challenging character and not totally a good guy, not quite a bad guy, you know, I think that is kind of evocative of that, you know, make up your own mind. You know, here's the good, here's the bad, here's, you know, some ideas for you to think about, you know, you know, think about anarchy a bit. Here's one interpretation. And I do think that's kind of his goal. Um, I do, I do want to, I got a note here. At one point, they wanted to call this series Good Guy, which I thought was an oh, interesting really? uh, alternate wow. title. That would not have been as powerful. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, and of course, I, uh, in my research, the, the title V for Vendetta is a play on Winston Churchill's slogan in World War II, V for Victory. You know, all those famous photographs of Winston Churchill flashing the, the two fingers for V uh, for Victory. Um, yeah. I, want, I have just a few notes I want to ask Kale about. Kale, did you notice uh, when V takes over the TV station, the dad in the house, he's like banging on the TV and he's complaining about, you know, what, what do I pay the TV license for? I just want to know as an American... Uh, and an American living in Canada, do you know what the TV license is? It's a very British thing. <laughs> no, I, I just assumed it was like a, a cable subscription. 
it's worse than that. Mark, do you want to explain as... as, as... Oh, <laughs> in the UK, um, the national broadcaster is still publicly owned, um, which is to say <laughs> that it's not necessarily uh, a cooperative so much as it's owned by the government and... Mm. Um, Successive governments have never got rid of this policy, but the policy is the TV licensing fee, which uh, it's been decided by successive governments and successive leaderships of the BBC that uh, we don't want advertising. We uh, the the viewer wants just content, pure content, all day, every day on on every BBC channel. And as a result, if anyone has a TV in their house that can pick up the BBC channels, they have to pay this fee. Um, or there's a fine and we can take people to court and you literally do get those threats in, in the mail. Uh, it's kind of cooled off in more recent years because now with streaming services, they can't prove it, but mm -hmm. they used to go round in vans. And I'm yeah. not kidding when I say this, they used to go around in van, in, in vans, sorry, with uh, detector equipment that could pick up TV signals coming from people's houses and then they could lay a fine on you if you hadn't paid. That's insane. So it wasn't yeah. cable. Kale, it was just for owning a TV because you could receive the, the British Broadcasting Corporation's uh, reception, which I think is the most absurd thing. I've lived in several countries all over the world. I'm now living in the UK. And uh, as an act of defiance, I refuse to pay my TV license because, uh, you know, I'm in my 30s and it's 2020. I don't watch uh, TV. I watch streaming services. So, you know, no one's ever challenged me on it. But if they do, I will just plainly show them that you know we have no need for your for your broadcast television thank you so much it's just i it was a very british thing that i wanted to see if you'd heard about because i think it's just insane and everyone just kind of goes along with it but you know i'm, I'm making my stand so come at me bbc i'm not paying it <laughs> um i want to talk about evie a little bit like she's just she's so young she's 16 when the story starts and she's out and it, I know it's her first night and she's like run out of options and she's desperate, but she's soliciting for, for sex. She's trying to make it as a sex worker on that first night when V rescues her. Um, so she's only 16. She was born in 1981. Um, you know, okay, fine. Having a younger character, but then she does end up in a, in a um, physical relationship with a middle-aged man later on in the story. I don't know. how did you guys feel about how young she was? I felt pretty uncomfortable uh, about it because, uh, <laughs> okay, it, you know, in the movie, uh, she is actually an adult uh, and she is like a TV producer or she works in a TV station. Uh, so those things are OK. And, in, you know, when I read the book, I was like, oh, wait, no, she's 16 in this book. <laughs> and and again, has... bring it back to Watchmen. I mean, Dr. Manhattan starts a romantic and physical relationship with Laurie when she is not much older than 16. Yeah, so he, true. this is again like a common theme in his work. It's just something worth noting, I think. Yeah, it, it does kind of feel like a slightly worrying trait in in uh, Alan Moore's work. Like very powerful writer, very intelligent writer, but um, <laughs> the fact that he starts Viva Vendetta with like, oh yeah, and she's sixteen and she's uh, gonna go out and try and get her first John, uh, mm -hmm. it's like, oh I, yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's very uncomfortable. Yeah. One other thing I wanted to talk about, uh, specifically with the writing, um, the vicious cabaret song that begins one of the issues. Uh, I never really paid much attention to it. Um, you know, a lot of times like music going on in the backgrounds of scenes and comics, I kind of 
you know, tune it out, you know, as if it was like a movie and just like a soundtrack playing. But like, I really paid attention this time. And I actually, you can go on YouTube and people have played the song and uh, have, you know, composed, like taken the, the composition, played it out on piano and they're singing it out. And, you know, I thought it was like, okay, you know, it's a song that V is playing that just kind of ties into the themes of the issue and the themes of the story. But like, no, it's very specific about these characters. Like it's, it talks about like what Evie is doing that day and what the, uh, the members of Norsefire are doing that day. And, you know, it, it very much took me out of the story. It's not something that a character in the story could possibly ever compose. It reminded me of, I don't know if you guys have watched Basketball as many times as I have. I love that movie. <laughs> There's a scene where he's like, driving around and the song's like you know you're down you can't let go you gotta get back up and then it starts getting really specific and it's like your girlfriend thinks you suck and this evil guy is trying to blackmail you and your best friends betrayed you but now you got to watch out because there's a truck changing lanes and you got some crumbs on your upper lip and it just gets super specific and that's how i felt reading or listening to this song it's just like there's no way that V, the character, could have written this song. Like, it's definitely Alan Moore, the writer, telling us, like, this is what everyone is doing. Yeah, it feels like metafiction, for sure. Yes. But um, we do find out at the end that he does have an active real-time link to... Uh, he's hacked into or perhaps even um, uh, orchestrated uh, what is fate. So maybe he is getting this real time thing and it maybe it's an improv song we we there's an ambiguity to that kind of as well it's i don't know man doesn't he have other things to do besides like keeping detailed notes on what everyone's doing this week and then writing a brand new song and composing a brand new song uh you'd think so yeah <laughs> <laughs> but we should probably explain what fate is uh yeah for i mean people who haven't read the book. So Fate is a like a computer that controls everything that it takes place uh, it, in the government. Uh, so it's mm -hmm. uh, Adam Susan, uh, or a settler, a settler who in the movie um, yeah. is kind of uh, connected to and he loves uh, as well and he speaks to. But yeah, fate he, is just he pleasures himself computer. to the computer at one point as well. That is correct. Yeah, yes. there was that scene. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but, you know, I, I, speaking of fate and uh, Sutler or, or Susan uh, and his, and their connection, uh, I, if, you know, you see V and Lady Justice also having that kind of connection in the book as well. Right. So, uh, yeah, he's kind of romancing her and, you know, uh, he's got a soliloquy for her before mm -hmm. he continues on his uh, his rampage. Mm -hmm. and, and that kind of shows that. Uh, you know, they are kind of mirrors of each other, right? Like, oh, yeah, right. Um, uh, of course, uh, Susan being the kind of uh, evil, not evil, but like the 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 government side, and then V mm -hmm. being uh, yeah, the rebel. So, yeah, the the fake computer also is, I think, the one of the more overt references to 1984. You know, it's the big brother eye that kind of gives them control over the populace. If you're looking for connections and illusions. Um, one thing I want to say about the writing, and then if you guys have anything else, uh, we can talk about the writing or we can move on to the art. But uh, just as someone living in Scotland with a, with a Scottish lady, uh, the, the Scottish character, his, his dialogue is pretty tough going somewhere in some places because he was trying to write him phonetically. So it seemed just kind of like, you know, the worst of Irvin Welsh who writes Train Spotting and related books like that. <laughs> so I just written down some quotes. Ah, uh, Luke, come on, guess a break, eh? 
listen, I go to piss off. See you later. All right. And it just slowed down my reading. I had to like sound everything out. It just, I don't know. I thought it was a little bit over the top. Uh, Matt, I've got to say, hearing a Canadian attempt a Scottish accent <laughs> is amazing. I love that. I, I'm not allowed to do my Scottish accent most of the time, Mark. Uh, <laughs> from doing it. Emma's, because I can only really do uh, Groundskeeper Willie, which I'm not allowed to do. And I can also do um, uh, the announcer from Love Island, Ian Sterling. Those are the only two people that I can kind of do a somewhat, what I think, accurate Scottish accent. But I'm not, I'm not allowed to do it around the house or in public. <laughs> you're telling me you're not going to ask your uh, lady to grease you up? <laughs> that's the only one she's like you only know how groundskeeper willie do you have any lunch lady doris do you have any grease less then grease me up woman that's it and then also i've got um previously on love island things are heating up <laughs> so you're welcome thank you <laughs> anything either one of you want to say about the writing before we move on to the art uh no go ahead let's move to move on to the art yeah, so the art was by David Lloyd. Um, I looked up just kind of some of his influences. He says Rembrandt, and you can see that, I think, in like the very heavy shadows, the chiaroscuro, so, you know, very stark light and very dark, dark, darks. Um, and Tony Weir, who did some uh, work in the series with him, who, uh, according to David Lloyd, he says he draws with light and shadow, no contour lines. So you can see that in the, the art, you know, it is something you kind of notice that there's there's no there's not necessarily contour lines for all the characters so sometimes the characters if they're in a light area and there's a light background they do kind of fade in like you know uh, the top of a character's head will kind of blend into the background and then when characters in shadow they really do kind of recede and fall into shadows and i i've heard both alan moore and david lloyd talking about this how they say you know they like that because it does make you kind of look a bit more at the art and kind of makes you kind of search for the character and search for the image I don't know. How do you guys feel about the, these these heavy, heavy, inky, inky uh, pages of art? I really liked it personally. Um, so I'm a comic book writer myself, and and I've written stuff for various artists that I've worked with. So Elaine and Will, my wife, um, and then also Ryan Howe. I'm also working with another artist right now, Jasmine Redford, and they do very wildly different things. Some of them border on fine art. Uh, when you look at like Jasmine Redford's stuff, where she does coffee painting, uh, which is really out there for for comics, but it, it works for the project we're currently working on. Um, and then stuff through to more comic book, traditional photorealism kind of comic book artwork with Ryan Howe. Um, but this was, for me, really different. And now that you mentioned Rembrandt, I can see it with the, the dark color palette and stay in dark and stay in... Um, and there's not even shades, it's just dark. And and it's this, um, uh, what was that art period called? Baroque? Um, very yeah, Baroque. So. Yeah, like German Baroque artwork. And it's um, uh, very, very photorealistic within that somehow. Uh, like mm -hmm. the angles that David Lloyd gets uh, when he has to do like an aerial shot, he gets like the exact degree of that angle looking down everything's perfectly proportioned and it's absolutely flawless I, I thought it was fantastic i thought that the artwork it, it's beautiful but it also kind of is like the artwork of the comics of the 80s so like it's very much dated in that mm -hmm. sense if you read like dark knight returns or uh even sometimes watchmen as well uh similar it, the, the, the art style I... seems similar yeah 
but specifically this stuff, like I just I felt like it was such a heavy, heavy blotches of art almost is the best way I can describe it. And I think I spoke about this in an earlier episode with Kale, just talking about how generally in comic art when you're drawing, you want to draw everything kind of one and a half times the size of the final page. But because the ink was just so heavy, like I I couldn't find any uh, any actual information about the original pages. But I'm just I'm curious to see if David Lloyd actually kind of maybe drew it a bit smaller, maybe drew it kind of close to the the printed size of the page, just because you don't get you know the level of detail that you can get in pages from Watchmen or uh, Dark Knight Returns, as you mentioned, Kale. Like you still you know you still get a little bit more of that detail, and in these pages, it just seems like the ink is just soaking up in the page so much that you lose the, the finer, more poignant details, which I think is very much his intention. Cause I did read, um, David Lloyd did two issues of, um, sorry, John, John Constantine Hellblazer with uh, writer Grant Morrison, who was the writer for our last episode, um, Arkham Asylum. And it's a very different style. It's, it doesn't have the same kind of very kind of soaked up, uh, dark, splotches of ink and he doesn't even have like solid areas of black so much as he kind of has this kind of stippling effect where it's kind of getting a little bit lighter to a little bit darker and then even in like the dark dark shadows it's not quite a hundred percent black and so he does like to experiment and you know obviously whatever he did for from vendetta was very intentional and interesting Kayla, you thought of 80s comics i thought of maybe even earlier comics from like the 60s and mark maybe you can speak to this growing up in the UK, but it reminded me just the, the page structure. Everything is very much on three tiers and, you know, a bit more panels than you might expect in a modern comic. Most modern comics have about six panels. Uh, Watchmen famously has that nine panel grid. This doesn't stick to a rigid grid, but it does stick to a rigid three tier structure, except for one page, which I want to talk about in a second. But just because it has, you know, this very uniform layout uh, to the different panels. It reminded me of old British comics where you would see kind of all the panels be almost the exact same size and then there'd be a lot of text captions underneath kind of pretty much describing exactly what you see in the image. Mark, did you get that impression as well? Yeah, um, I got the impression that, um, so to give context to what I'm about to say, the rest of the world, literally the rest of the world, except for the US and Canada uses metric paper. Uh, it's literally only the United States and Canada, um, because it has to rely so heavily on the United States for trade, uh, mm -hmm. is kind of essentially co-opted into using imperial size paper, even though it's a metric country. Um, so um, in the UK, all the comics up until very recently, uh, probably only about 20 years ago, I say very recently, that's to make myself feel younger. Um, but- uh, You're the youngest one in this call, so you know. <laughs> am I? Oh, okay. Um, and uh, so they, um, they, yeah, up until very recently, they would draw them on this real big metric size paper. Um, now the whole industry around the world has pretty much gone to the, the North American traditional comic book size of, uh, Oh, what is that? 11 and, a, 11 and three quarters by seven and a half. Um, I always have to Google it just to check, but that sounds right. And um, it's, uh, yeah, so they would draw, draw it at, what was it, A3? Um, and yeah, so it feels like it was drawn for A3 for what is now commonly called the Franco-Belgian size. Um, and then it was scaled into the size we have today, which is still larger than a North American graphic novel, but it's not um, 
the the old British and European comic size that we used to get? Well, I even know, um, and you hear a lot of, uh, you know, mainstream now DC Marvel art or writers like uh, Mark Miller and Grant Morrison talking about when they were growing up in Scotland, that, you know, the only way to get American comics growing up in the UK was to get these large black and white reprints that were kind of tabloid or magazine size. So, you know, they took what we think of as traditional US size comic pages and then blew them up again to reprint them in the UK. Yeah, um, and because what I grew up with in the UK was the the bigger tabloid size comics, and the comics that I first got into, like uh, whenever I, I went in, what in the UK we call a lorry, but a, a truck, uh, with my dad um, when he was working, he would sometimes if we stopped at like uh, what is called a corner shop in the UK, but like a convenience store essentially, um, we would go into that convenience store and get. Um, my dad would get me like a Beano or a Dandy, which is like, so British comedy comics are what I grew up with. And interestingly, they, they were the smallest comics. You would then get into these much bigger tabloid sized ones like 2000 AD, which were like a magazine style. So it's not like the North American style or it's around the world now, this, this style of you have one end to end story in one issue in a comic. It was loads of different like vignettes of, um, stories in, in essentially a magazine. So it gave this kind of value to the reader and this like perceived value, I guess. Yeah. I, uh, I grew up with the Beano as well. My brother always got dandy and I was always sent the Beano from my, my English aunts. Um, but yeah, it's, it's much a larger comic, but it just, another thing I was wondering too, you know, because the pages are so packed and so dense and they do have, you know, more panels than you might expect in a modern comic. I'm wondering if that it was a product of this serialization. So as I mentioned at the start of the episode, you know, they were only given maybe six or eight pages in each issue of Warrior. So it feels like they really make the most of those six to eight pages and they want to cram in as much as they can. So it, they are very tightly, densely packed panels. Um, one other thing that I thought was just kind of interesting, you know, typically when you're reading a comic, you expect, you know, to end the page, especially a two page spread, that last page on a cliffhanger. And that kind of forces you as the reader to turn the page and see what happens. And then the surprise happens on that next page when you turn the page. But very often, especially at the start, they would put their surprise in the last panel. So V would show up unexpectedly, you know, uh, to save Evie from being attacked or he would show up unexpectedly on the train when he attacks a few party members, but you see it on the last panel of the page before you turn the page, which I would have expected it, you know, V's voice to be like, I wouldn't do that if I were you. And then you would be like, well, who's this? Who showed up in the scene? And then you turn the page and you're surprised with V's there. Yeah, I found that really interesting too. As a comic book writer, it kind of like jarred me a couple of times when I saw it. And mm -hmm. do you think that's possibly, especially in the earlier pages, do you think that's possibly a product of when it was being serialized in that magazine? Yeah, I, I think they just, you know, only had so many panels that they could cram into every page. But it is, you know, as a I write for other artists as well, and I'm always thinking about, you know, that 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 cliffhanger to get the reader to turn to the next page and how can you surprise them? Cause it's hard to surprise people when you read a comic, when you've got two pages, you know, as much as you can pace out the, the experience, there's nothing to stop someone's eye from drifting across these two pages before they kind of read the details and read the actual text and the dialogue. So the only way to really catch them off guard is to place your surprise at the top of that left-hand page when you turn the page over. And it just was weird because I go so far out of my way to make sure that I'm moving things around so that each page has that kind of cliffhanger. And to see someone who's regarded as, 
a master of their craft, a master of this craft, of our craft, you know, break that rule was it was kind of jarring as well. I do want to talk about what I thought was the the best page turn reveal, and as I just mentioned, you know, the the pages were laid out very much in three panels, uh, except for one page. Do you guys remember the one page when he finally broke the the three panel rule, or sorry, the three tier rule? Wasn't that the the music? uh area of the of the book even the music does kind of stick to three tiers i think but i'm thinking of the page where so in the story um evie is kind of she leaves the shadow gallery she leaves v's home and then she's interacting with the world again and then eventually she's shacked up with this guy his house gets raided she uh gets dragged off and then she's in a concentration camp and she's being tortured and interrogated and then eventually she says you know i'm not going to betray v i'm not going to give him up and then the interrogators say okay you're free to go and then she realizes it's all just a facade it's all just been fake you know someone's been making her think she's in a prison and then she goes through a door and then they turn the page and we have this full page image it's the only time they do it in the entire book it's just one single image on the entire page, and she realizes she's been in the shadow gallery the whole time. We realize she's been in V's hideout the whole time, and he's standing there and saying, Welcome home, Evie. And it just really, really jumps out. It's a really powerful moment and made so much more powerful because it's preceded by, I don't remember how many, six, five issues of these three tiers, you know, nine or ten panels per page, and suddenly we have this one image just boom. And it was just, I think, one of the most powerful moments in the entire story. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I was just going to say that's a really interesting thing about comic book writing is when you develop more chops for it with experience, you get to that point where um, you kind of figure out that for a big emotional impact or a, um, you know, some kind of psychological impact to the reader, we, we can have this bigger, more intricate panel or, or a splash page, as it's called. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, that that's something that I found really interesting. And I, I would like to know whether that came from Dan Lloyd's interpretation of the script or from Alan Moore himself. Yeah, and um, I, I got my hands on the 30th anniversary uh, edition of the book, and there's a lot more uh, backup material. And Alan Moore really does go out of his way to point out, you know, this was a collaboration and they would send each other ideas and David Lloyd would send sketches and they would really talk about it back and forth. And Alan Moore really wanted to make sure that it wasn't, you know, David Lloyd drawing an Alan Moore script, but it was a comic by Alan Moore and David Lloyd. So, you know, I'm sure it was, you know, born out of that collaboration process, but it is, it is cool, you know, seeing people exploit, you know, build rules and then exploit them for an, an emotional impact on the reader. Um, did you guys, uh, did you notice, so Evie goes to uh, the this pedophilic priest. So this is the second book in a row that Kale and I have covered where there's pedophilic overtones. Um, not, not a huge fan, but whatever. Um, but uh, she's dressed up as, as an even younger girl and she's alone in his room. And then uh, he kind of leads her to the bed. But did you notice uh, the folds on his bed are forming a sort of pentagram? Oh, I did not notice that at all. Yeah, uh, a little, maybe a little heavy-handed, but I mean, it's not it's not overly overt, but I was like, ooh, <laughs> again, you know, bringing back to the importance of symbols, uh, you know, V's symbol where he spray print, spray, where he spray paints a, a V with a circle around it, you know, very much evokes that image of the anarchist A symbol with a circle going through it. Um, there's V's everywhere. Like, did you guys notice just, you know, people are raising their arms up in V's, 
Uh, obviously, V gets his name from being in room five with a Roman numeral V. I, I started looking for Vs where there weren't Vs. Uh, early on in the story, he, he attacks the train that's number 730. And I was like, ooh, 730. I wonder if on a clock, on the face of a clock, if you put the hands into the 7 and the 30 position, does it make a V? And like, no, of course it doesn't. Uh, it's unless you really think about like an upside down squint tv but like i got to that point where i was like oh there's got to be more that i'm missing there's got to be more in there just because i know how much these two guys are really playing up symbols yes and oh obviously the 5th of november uh mm-hmm. and yeah v is basically everywhere it's really uh even the way he speaks sometimes right so um alan moore talks a, a lot in uh, the writing process for Watchmen, just how many things just kind of showed up and they started seeing these connections more and more and started seeing smiley faces more and more. And I think the same thing happened during the writing process of this. You know, they started seeing other ways to include V, like uh, Beethoven's fifth, dun 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 dum is Morse code for the letter V. But, and when he uh, escapes uh, the concentration camp, he mm-hmm. raises his arms in a V as well. Right? Yeah, so. and Evie does the same thing when she's let out into the rain in that sort of scene of rebirth. She's got her arms raised to the sky in a V shape as the rain's falling on her. Mm-hmm. Uh, those two scenes did also connect, in my mind, back to Dr. Manhattan's sort of rebirth in Watchmen. Yeah, so the lettering was interesting to me because they very deliberately removed the uh, the outline of all the balloons. So uh, they have black text on a white balloon, but there's no outline to the balloon. Connects it to, I guess, the, the the lack of contour lines in the characters and in the art. But, I, you know, I, I appreciate the bold choice, but they run into problems almost instantly where the, the balloons are over top of a white background and the balloons bleed into the, the background. It's hard to see the tail sometimes and know who's speaking. It's hard to differentiate between the, the dialogue and the background. And I can imagine it, it must have been even more difficult when these were originally printed in black and white in Warrior. What did you guys think about that very strong, deliberate choice? Uh, for me, I um, yeah, at first it's confusing, but it also speaks to how strong uh, Alan Moore's characters are. So, mm. um, you know, when you talk about characterization as a writer and how you can make strong characters, you know who you begin to get to know who's speaking without seeing the tail, because sometimes the tail isn't even there. It, it vanishes into the white of the background. Um, but you get this idea of the theme of what somebody's saying, you know that, oh, it's that character, for sure, it's them talking. Um, And so that is, I found that pretty interesting, Uh, but there are definitely some panels where you're kind of pulling your hair out, going just why Mm -hmm. is this, um, why are there no outlines, or why is the tail not more visible? Um, yeah, and I think some characters have very distinctive ways of talking. You know, we mentioned that V uses very eloquent language and also uses the letter V quite a bit. And when he's talking with Evie, it's quite clear. Also, V has kind of a wavy shape to his balloons. Again, maybe think of uh, Rorschach and Watchmen has this kind of wavy, distinctive balloon. Kind of gives you the impression it's being muffled a bit under his mask. But when a lot of the party members were talking to each other, like I had such a hard time when they were all together in a group and then their wives were also involved, except for the Scottish guy who obviously stuck out like a sore thumb. So I agree for a lot of the characters, it, it was easy to kind of keep track. But when these groups got together, oh my gosh, I was lost at some points. What did, uh, did you guys notice anything crazy or interesting about the coloring? Yeah, uh, I 
I felt like the coloring was mute. Uh, it's mm-hmm. it's not something that actually is quite strong, and that's very different from, of course, the comics that I usually read. So it took me a minute to get used to it. Uh, but I think it also, again, uh, going back to comics from the '80s, the colors tend to be a little bit uh, duller uh, than you know modern comics. Mm-hmm. But yeah, maybe that also speaks to the the themes of the of the book as well. And you know, even when we were talking earlier about the heavy blacks, uh, it also you know, I mean, if if you're living in a dystopian future, maybe it doesn't need to be super bright and yeah. amazing looking, right? But I think also too, it kind of shows the history of this comic. So it was originally only intended to ever be black and white. So the color is just this very light kind of. Uh, wash over top of these heavy black inks and it is almost kind of incidental in most cases. Uh, I did appreciate the color for helping me find the the main cop, uh, Finch, because he was always wearing a a greenish-brown trench coat and that did help me when it was a bunch of party members together. I was able to find, okay, at least I know this guy, at least I know the cop. Um, I thought there's some cool things they did where in the nightclub scene they had these kind of psychedelic colors just kind of wash over everything and not really, you know, adhere to the form and the shape of the characters or their clothing. It was just kind of, you know, general light, you know, yellows and pinks kind of going over everyone. What did you think of that splash page where Evie gets captured right before she shoots uh, someone? So, like, I I thought that was a cool piece of art because of Mm -hmm. the use of pinks and blacks. I, I like art that's kind of so stark sometimes. Yeah. Yeah, and so it, it definitely, I it, it stood out to me from the rest of the book. Yeah, I think he does, uh, the two of them do this kind of cool cross-cutting effect and the way that they kind of show the two different timelines in that scene and I think it's earlier on in that issue as well. Uh, they'll have an image that's kind of bathed in one color and that's juxtaposed with the panels that are, you know, more traditionally colored. So you know, okay, this is one timeline, this is another timeline. You know, Evie... Uh, having this awkward conversation with Gordon, the man that she's staying with, and then cross-cutting with these uh, deep reds of them in bed together, and then cutting back to them having an awkward conversation leading up to that moment, and it just tells you which timeline we're in. Same thing leading up to uh, her assassination attempt. But what I really liked about that scene, though, is the way it closed out with a character who we find out to be V, but he kind of jumps her and chloroforms her, and she as she blacks out uh, the art kind of gets darker and the shadows kind of take over the image and then we have this one really powerful uh totally black panel as she kind of loses all sense of the world so kale you said you first came to this story through the film mm-hmm. um you didn't rewatch it you were you said you uh, you listened to some uh reviews of the film what, what's your takeaway what's your impression of the film versus the comic so i've actually seen the film several times and that's why uh, I wanted to concentrate more on the book this time around uh, for, for the podcast mm-hmm. instead of re-watching the movie again. Uh, so I, you know, at, at the time, uh, you know, as a progressive, it was a hard time, uh, especially during the Bush era when uh, they were doing, you know, they, they were going to war with Iraq. And like, uh, I, I think this is close to the Bush re-election um, at the time. So it, maybe he had just been reelected and he had all this political capital and he was uh, trying to do a lot of things to gut social programs and, uh, you know, take away things from the working class. Right. So uh, 
for me, when I when I watched the movie, it really uh, kind of I, I was already in a in a rage state, uh, much like I am right now uh, with uh, the Donald Trump administration. But mm-hmm. uh, the movie actually like tapped into that mentality pretty well because you know I I wanted so badly for for the power to be given back to the people, you know, and to mm-hmm. uh, have uh, you know like just uh, a normalcy to to life again you know uh, that was probably enjoyed uh, a few years before that so mm-hmm. i th- it, it definitely spoke to me at the time and of course marry that with like an action movie <laughs> and you got my attention you know so like uh, so much action compared to the book where there's just mm-hmm. like a few panels and you see like the you know, take his daggers out and then we see guns flying out of hands and then there's people just on the ground and that's it. Whereas Mm -hmm. we've got these slow-mo action scenes, yeah. Yeah, and I think it's because of the Wachowskis, uh, you know, at least, you know, in a a producing capacity uh, and the visualization that they kind of are expected to bring to movies. And I I think the director tried to uh bring that visual visual style uh of like you know kung fu and like mm-hmm. uh high action into uh the movie itself so i think that's why that was there and you know the ex- because the audience expectation is there whenever you hear uh, that the wachowskis are involved in some sort uh so yeah i, I enjoyed that part as well uh, i mean it's a bit a bit outlandish the amount of like <laughs> damage one person can do with two knives in this in that movie but you know, it, it. I I think thematically and uh, as an action movie, like it, it all kind of fit together pretty well. Uh, Mark, what's your impression? What's your relationship with the film? Um, so pretty much the same as Kale with how I came to be introduced to it, like introduced to the world of V for Vendetta. I came to it from the uh, movie. I'd never even heard of the graphic novel at this point. I was in university. I remember uh, my dad and I... Um, Jesus may have even been video rental. Like, hey, remember those guys? Um, we rented yeah, it on DVD. Yeah. Um, we, I believe we rented it on DVD. And this was like in the dying days of video rentals because this was like 2006, if I remember rightly. Um, and we both enjoyed it. Um, looking back on it and after like a second watch and and however many watches I've, I've seen it since, but... Um, I noticed that there are things that are, even before I'd read the graphic novel, are kind of bizarre in there. Things that make it feel like, wait, this is a movie about Britain, but it is so American. Um, and it's things like, uh, so we get the Stephen Fry character who obviously doesn't exist in the, in the, um, no, I, I guess he does exist in the graphic novel, but he's a very different character in the graphic novel, a very different character. Um, it's also kind of takes on a few different aspects of characters that didn't quite make it in the translation. So right. And serves it, several roles. And in the graphic novel, he's like homosexual, but like cartoonishly homosexual in the graphic novel. But in the uh, movie, they made him very much a real man and an intellectual. And he's, uh, he, he's read the Quran. He's read these illegal religious books. He's read books of the intelligentsia, which are illegal. Um, and, you know, academic books, all of that. Um, but there's this scene where the thing that gets him black bagged, which is not his... Um, you know, not being heterosexual. It's not his um, not just accepting what the party says. It's uh, making this um, 
oh, what's his name again? Benny Hill, making this Benny Hill yakety sax scene, which yeah. is um, in Britain, just to give some background here, in Britain, Benny Hill has fallen into obscurity like a long time ago, fell into obscurity. But the, the US and the US uh, entertainment market and, and uh, people that enjoy comedy, all of that kind of thing in Hollywood uh, is absolutely obsessed with the yakety sax and absolutely obsessed with Benny Hill. And so I know it sounds weird that Benny Hill's British and that's the thing that I think makes it American, but it is like that. That's one of the scenes where you go, oh, this is oddly American because like, yeah, exactly. And like you watch anything American in in the past, oh, hell, even 40 years, like, um, yeah. and it's everything from any sitcom, like Family Guy has done it hundreds of times. Um, I think even The Simpsons have done it once or twice, well, but I mean, um, you almost get the impression that all of British TV is just Benny Hill. If you only know about British TV through American TV, right? And um, th and so there are a few things that stand out as as quite bizarre for a, a movie that is centered on uh, fascism only having taken over Britain and seemingly not the rest of the world, or at least from what we're aware of, and. There's right at the very beginning of the movie, we get this um, uh, kind of vignette style introduction to the world of, you know, this is what happened. There was this uh, chemical warfare um, and there was this big attack on one of the underground stations. But then they very, very, uh, and it's non-discreet. They just ram it in there. There's this bit where they go, oh, and by the way, there was a second civil war in the United States. And it, it feels like the Hollywood producers of this movie were going, oh, you know, the world should care about what went on in the United States, even though it doesn't even come up once in the graphic novel. And again, it feels weird for they're trying to set the scene of London, Britain, and then they just like about a minute in go boom the united states and you go oh wait a second guys that that's taken me out of the story now um and there's also like this feeling in the book of um that v has an aversion to policy and and it's weird to say talk about what i'm what i'm trying to talk about is a feeling or a tone i know that's weird rather than talking about what's overt in the movie but there's a feeling of um, anti-Bush administration, which I get it, because mm -hmm. um, we were kind of tainted by that in Britain too. We had a very liberal government at the time with Tony Blair and, and the uh, Labour government, but uh, we were kind of dragged into Iraq, uh, which is one of the things that a million people marched on London. Just to put it mm -hmm. in perspective, like a million people in a peaceful protest marched on London and we still went. Uh, so that gives you an idea of of there was some kind of backlash to that in the UK as well. Yeah. Um, but um, it it feels a little bit coated in Bush administration in the sense that it feels natively American and not natively British. Mm -hmm. um, so I know that's a weird thing to kind of, and a weird way to describe it. Like it's this tone, this feeling, this, uh, you know, ephemeral passing moment in the movie but that is kind of what it is um so i, I both love the movie but i also find these oddities in it that i can mm -hmm. very quickly pick out having grown up and lived in britain before i moved to canada here um and also like what kale touched upon earlier there's this feeling of um cartoonishness to the fascism like 
um, they're there because well, and and they got voted in as well, which is obviously not how fascism works, um, and it's not how it works in the graphic novel either. Like uh, if you look at the history of it, you've got Mussolini who the March on Rome, you've got the beer hall perched in. Um, in, in Germany and, and well, there's other events in Germany, the Night of the Long Knives, all of that. Uh, and then in Japan, you had the uh, the Japanese army had separated from the government. Um, but and then Hadaiki Tojo, all of that. But um, in the movie, it's like, oh, there was just this, uh, this chemical attack happened and then they, um, they got voted in, which if you think about it for 10 seconds, when you get to the, you know, spoiler alert, uh, the chemical attack was manufactured by who become Norse fire, which mm -hmm. when you think about it for 10 seconds, it falls apart because you think, well, surely that would have needed government funding or some kind of private funding from somewhere. And then like the people that funded that would have asked questions. Um, so like it falls apart immediately. And that's another problem I have with the movie is you think about it for 10 seconds and you go, that's not even remotely possible that they win in the landslide election. Which, I mean, going back to Alan Moore and his writing process, you know, he does think about things for much longer than 10 seconds and he yeah. does consider the entire world and the history and, you know, what, you know, the history of the party is, the history of the country at the time and everything leading up to it. So, you know, it does speak to the strength, I think, of Alan Moore's writing. So I very much went out of my way to make sure I read the comic uh, before the movie. I always try to do that. Uh, you know, I want to see what the, the original medium was. And, you know, I remember the movie because I did see it when it first came out in 2006 as being, you know, everyone kind of just dismissed it a bit as a Matrix ripoff. And rewatching it now, I was kind of expecting, you know, a bit more bullet time. You know, that's like the, the one key... Wachowski kind of visual signature, you know, people flipping around and things going like, you know, frozen in air. And while they did have a lot of slow-mo uh, at the, the last scene where V's throwing his daggers and they're kind of floating through the air, there actually wasn't any what I would call true bullet time scenes. Uh, so I just did kind of remember it slightly differently. But, you know, I, I think <laughs> I think they kind of state their intention in the opening with the, the V and the logo on fire. <laughs> just like inflamed and it just kind of you know kind of told you this is going to be a bit more of an action movie than you might expect if you only know the graphic novel it reminded me of kale when you and i saw team america world police in the cinema and they blew up the title <laughs> and blew up the world <laughs> it felt very much like that but not a parody um one thing that i found really interesting the the graphic novel goes out of its way not to use sound effects and there's no motion lines and the movie uses so many sound effects, you know, even from the opening with that explosion of the, the title, but also every time V takes out his knife, there's like a shing and he throws a knife and there's like a shing and there's all these sounds and it's just bombastic. And, you know, a, a casual comic book reader might say that it, the sound effects are comic booky and very cartoony, but this graphic novel went so far out of their way to make sure that was one of their rules that they didn't have sound effects or motion lines. So it, while you might think this was, you know, a reflection of its comic book roots or a way to honor its comic book roots, it really is kind of doing a disservice to it, to this particular comic book's roots, which mm -hmm. I just thought was kind of interesting. Um, the, uh, you know, that famous quote, I think that we all kind of associate with Vif Vendetta, people shouldn't be afraid of their government, government should be afraid of their people. Uh, it's not in the book. 
I, I read it through a few times just to make sure. Like, it only comes from the movie, I guess. It's been, I've seen it online, you know, everyone says, oh, it comes from Alan Moore and V for Vendetta, but I cannot find any evidence of it actually being in the book. And I was keeping an eye out for it. And so I think it is just a product of the movie, maybe. Uh, famously, this is the, the last straw for Alan Moore in his uh, saga with Hollywood. And this is what made him completely cut ties and swear to never work for DC again. Um, he always asked for his name to be removed from adaptations of his uh, comics into films. But DC went out and said that uh, he's been, he's seen the script and he's very excited for the movie. And Alan Moore was like, no, I never said that. I want you to recant that. I want you to take that, you know, to take that down. I never, I'm not supporting this. I want nothing to do with it. DC refused to uh, recant that. So Alan Moore, had, from this film on, has publicly cut ties completely with DC and vowed never to work with him again. Um, one other thing. Do you know when they released the film in cinemas? I believe it was 2005, right? It was 2006, but do you oh, know what date? Uh, no, not really. What, what would you assume based on this film and the content? They should have released it on November 5th. This was released on March 17th, 2006. How do you not release this film on November the 5th? It's absurd. <laughs> like, the, the tagline, it's right there, you know. Uh, this March 17th. Remember, remember the 5th of November. It's so confusing. <laughs> uh, I just thought that was just too ridiculous to not point out. Um, one last thing I want to say about the film. Um, I I was disheartened when I saw the film because it, it, it omitted my two favorite scenes in the entire book. Uh, my two favorite scenes have to do with V's mask. And when V goes to kill the coroner, Dr. Delia Surridge, she asks to see his face one last time and he removes his mask. We don't see it as the audience. You know, it's very much cast in shadow when we're seeing him from behind. But she, you know, tears up and she gets to see his mask. Obviously, we know that he's been burnt and he's disfigured. But I just thought it was a very beautiful moment before he, he kills her. And then later on at the end, when V tells Evie, like, I'm going to die. I want you to know who is under the mask, but you can, you must never take my mask off and never look. And she's sitting there just kind of shell-shocked looking at uh, V's dead body. And she imagines all these different scenarios where she removes the mask and she sees her father or she sees her dead lover's face. And then eventually she, she sees her own face. And as you mentioned, Kale, you know, V is all of us. V can be anyone. And that's when she really realizes that and then takes on this persona of V. And that scene wasn't in the film. Uh, they did something similar where they get everyone kind of swarming the government at the end and they all are wearing the the guy fox costumes and they all take their masks off and we see all the faces of characters we've seen throughout the film even those who've been killed but i do like that moment in the comic where she's imagining all these different scenarios as she takes the masks off and i also like that in the comic she does embody v in a much more literal way she takes on the costume she wears the mask and she announces herself as v to the public and she doesn't do that quite so overtly in the in the comic which or sorry she doesn't do that quite so overtly in the film, which I thought was kind of a bummer. Yeah, All right. but I, I, I liked, uh, you know, I, I feel like Alan Moore definitely feels like they watered down the content a little bit uh, and the themes uh, mm -hmm. when they made the movie and made it into a more entertaining movie. But I also see the practicality that they had to basically take a, a lot of the graphic novel and kind of condense it <clears throat> into a movie that's two and a half hours. And also appeal to an American audience. I think they were effective. I, I, I enjoyed it. So I, I am able to separate the two, but it's just, 
is kind of a bummer because, okay, yeah, the story is interesting and the character is fascinating, but the comic, because they do it in these little episodes within the issues within the graphic novel, as I mentioned at the start, he does try different things out that you can only kind of do in comics. You know, he, he wrote about um, how that episode video where V's storming the, the TV station, he wanted to see if he can do a story where the only uh, text is uh, sound coming from the TV and how that uh, just incidental background noise from the TV is commenting on the action and commenting on the story. And, you know, each one of these episodes is kind of a little mini experiment in on in themselves. And you kind of lose that when you translate it to a, a film where you just kind of have to make it all one cohesive storyline. But I, I do understand and appreciate, you know, different structures for different mediums. But you do lose some of the things that make this graphic novel so groundbreaking and so unique. So before we wrap up, I got to talk about one last thing. Um, as I mentioned, there's no sound effects in this comic. But there's this one panel at the start where... Evie's being confronted by the, the fingermen, the police in this police state. And V shows up and rescues her. But what he does is someone grabs his hand and then he pulls away. And it turns out that his hand is actually a fake hand and it's a bomb. And it blows the character up. And it's very early on in the story. But uh, this panel that I'm looking at right now, we see the guy being kind of blown up. And it's kind of this uh, silhouette. But then it's kind of a hole being blown in the silhouette. It's, you know, uh, and then kind of flames around him. But within the panel, he's talking. So there's part of his dialogue, and he obviously gets cut off. And he's saying, I got his hand. What, what should I do with his? And then we have this image of him being blown up. And it's all in one panel. There's no sound effect. But the dialogue, even though it is cut off, it does give the panel a, an implication of length. He's able to say you know, this much dialogue before he's blown up. So it just really extends that moment. And I'm, I'm thinking so heavily about it because I just ran a lesson. Uh, for a school where we looked at time in comics and how time progresses in between panels. And this is just such a strange panel because it's so many moments in one. We see the explosion, which should be an instantaneous moment. And if it was a silent panel, it would be kind of this frozen moment that kind of lingers. If it had a sound effect, that gives it some kind of implication of time. But the fact that he's able to get this many words out before he explodes, it was just a very odd, interesting thing. Mark, before we wrap up, I do want to talk about your work as a comic book writer really quick. My favorite graphic novel that you've done so far is The Burning Black, The Legend of Black Shuck. Can you give us like a quick uh, blurb and then we'll tell you kind of the things that we really enjoyed about it? Yeah, for sure. The way that I would describe the book is that it's a, was it 80, 90 page graphic novel um, that focuses on a folklore that I kind of grew up with or, or kind of came of age with in the UK. So I come from a really rural part of the UK, a county called Suffolk, deeply rural. Most counties have at least a, a county city. We don't even have that. We've got a county town. That's how rural it is, um, you know, as the seat of power of the, uh, of the county. Um, and so there's this folklore of Black Shuck. So you rewind to the Tudor era, and there's this uh, story of this, big black demon dog who is said to have, you know, stood eight feet tall on all four legs. Um, and it, the rumor goes that he attacked uh, this village uh, church one night in a village called Bungie. And um, which is weird that there were apparently people used to worship at night, which I believe goes back to serfdom. Um, but anyway, the um, so this is Tudor times 1577. 
and he is said to have killed four worshippers before vanishing in a flash of lightning and reappearing 14 miles away in Blythburgh, which is a, another village which is slightly closer to the coast. Um, so I decided to take this and then uh, kind of uh, history punk it, which is to say that I decided to give Black Shark a backstory and I decided that it should be in the origin of an English England itself, which... Uh, for those that don't know, the origin of England as we know it today, speaking, you know, this Germanic, Teutonic English that we do, um, comes from uh, the Vikings versus the Saxons. That's the simplest way to put it, the Dark Ages. Uh, that is when two Germanic cultures went toe-to-toe -to -toe and the winner was, it was a winner-take-all thing. Um, I decided to put the backstory of Black Shark in that and focused on this uh, war of cultures, Christianity versus paganism, and uh, wanted to build it up from history into horror. And hopefully I kind of made it movie-esque, which is what I was aiming for. And so I that is- I definitely would say you made it very cinematic. Thank you. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. So Kale, you read The Burning Black for the first time uh, recently. What, what did you think about it? I really dug the art of the book. And I also like the story and I'm all into like historical fiction. I really enjoy that type of uh, genre. Yeah, I, I really liked it. It's um, so Mark wrote the book, but it features art by uh, our mutual friend, Ryan Howe, fantastic artist. Uh, if you like this art style, check out Ryan's uh, webcomic series, uh, Daisy Blackwood. It's kind of uh, if Laura Croft, Tomb Raider uh went and worked for the tailspin company so it's got it's it's very much like an indiana jones style daring do that's a strong female character but his art style is really nice i like the way these two guys are working together um and then elaine mark's wife did the coloring and the lettering and especially in that first sequence with the flashback the coloring is just beautiful what i really liked about the book is the pacing of it you know mark said that he did start with a bit of background a bit of the the history that he slightly invented but then when we get to the main thrust of the story, pretty much half the book is like this one extended action sequence where this demon dog is tearing through this town and just taking people out. And oh my gosh, it's such a page turner. And it's just the the pacing just, it kicks it into high gear and it doesn't let go until the story is over. And I just thought, I've never read a story that was able to keep up this kind of level of action and this level of intensity for as many pages as it did. And I just was really impressed with how uh, this team pulled that off. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it was really great having a writer's perspective. It was also just fun hanging out and chatting with you again, Mark. Um, where can people find your work online? You want to do some plugs? Yeah, for sure. So in terms of following me, you can find me on facebook.com slash cuckoo's nest press. That's where Elena and myself will post updates. Um, you can also um, find my work if you wish to buy it from renegadeartsentertainment.com. So you can buy it direct from the publisher there. Uh, in Canada, you can get it from bookstores coast to coast, or you can order it in if they don't have it. Uh, it's also available on Amazon in the UK and Canada. And there might be a few comic book stores that have it left. Awesome. Thank you so much, Mark. Uh, it's really cool. Uh talking comics with you again, getting your perspective. Uh, have a wonderful day and uh, have a nice 5th of the November. Thank you very much. Uh, yeah, it's been wonderful to chat with you. Really enjoyed it. Definitely. Right, thanks for thanks joining so us. Thank you. So we want to talk, we want to do some shout outs and thanks, right? So who do you want to thank? Do you have anyone in particular? 
I want to thank my mom for birthing me. And uh... <laughs> <laughs> I was going to mention Ben. And uh, I, I think it's really cute that Steph and Hammy sent us a video of watching or listening to the episode with their dog. Waverly. Yeah, and I, I really want to thank uh, all of our uh, friends and family for listening and supporting us. And uh, I've, you know, it, it's really nice to know that people are supporting us, right? And um, kind of have our backs. So we've had uh, some really lovely comments on yeah. our social media. Uh, if you don't follow us yet on social media, we've got Instagram and Facebook at Matt and Kale Read Comics. We're on Twitter at Matt and Kale Read. We also own mattandkale.com. So we post all of our episodes on there but in particular uh my my mom and my brother always kind of write and say really nice things but uh our mutual friend ben texted uh over instagram just to say he's really enjoying the episode but he's got uh, a family of two kids and his wife and he doesn't have a lot of time to listen to to podcasts so he said he's listening in like 15 minute bursts so when he catches up to this episode our fifth episode in a few months uh thanks for listening ben and thanks for letting us know that you enjoy the show and uh, again, Kale, our mutual friend Steph from film school and her husband Hammy sent us a lovely video of the two of them on the couch listening to our first episode with their dog Waverly. Uh, so that was very sweet. And Hammy saying, oh, I did not realize that. So thank you to everyone who has told us that they enjoy the show. Uh, go on our social media. We want to do an episode on Sin City, uh, Frank Miller's uh, noir graphic novel series. And we want you to help us decide which of the volumes to focus on. So go to Instagram uh, or Facebook at Matt and Kale Read Comics. Tell us which of the Sin City volumes you want us to read and whoever gets the most votes, that's the book we will go with in a future episode. Kale, what's our next episode? Our next episode is Superman Smashes the Clan. Yes, it is a, it's the newest graphic novel that we've ever looked at on this show. And also we will have another special guest to join us to help discuss this really fantastic graphic novel yes i cannot wait for that conversation i think it's yes. going to be uh i i related to that book quite a bit so it's kind of nice to actually just chat about that and uh the characterization in that as well yeah i i'm very excited to talk about that book i had a great time talking about v for vendetta uh i think it's a very heavy book i think there's lots to dive into i think we might have only really kind of scratched the surface, but mm -hmm. I think we, we gave it a good shot. Definitely. I mean, we could talk about this book for hours. Uh, and I, I want to thank Mark uh, for dropping in and chatting with us about this. And yeah, it. I, I wish, of course, we could <laughs> spend a lot of time talking about it, but I, I think we definitely uh, covered as much as we could. For sure. All right. Thank you again for listening. Uh, you know, like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you know someone who might enjoy this series, please do share. Help helps get the word out. And keep reading comments. Stay safe out there. And uh, have a happy uh, Guy Fawkes Day. Happy yeah. Bonfire Night. Remember, remember the 5th of November. On March 17th. Yes. <laughs>